Unlucky for some, Chapter 13. The Jealous Grass. Okay, let's get this straight. The only reason I'm mentioning the jealous grass in this book is because in my mind we have a right to reply for the first time to 20 years of slander and outrageous accusations that this pathetic excuse of a man has made against me and my family. He does not belong in this book otherwise. He has never committed what I and other criminals would describe as a criminal act of bravery in his entire life. He is laughed at by other criminals the length and breadth of the British Isles. I'd heard that even his plan to steal candy from a baby was foiled before he got anywhere near the pram. He commands no respect. I am an old-fashioned man with old-fashioned morals, and I am going to set the record straight for once and for all. Why has this man chosen to discredit me and my family? He is incapable of doing anything physical to us, so he has chosen to use the tactics of character assassination, and what better way to do that than to call the opposition grasses? He even came a bit unstuck when things didn't quite go so well for him on Westgate Hill during a run-in with the Sayers firm, where he maintains 14 of us did him over. Luckily for him, he managed to knock six of us out in one go. <clears throat> before he was taken down. Surely a man like the jealous grass would have come out on top, no matter what. I was introduced to a wise old man once, who described himself as a historian amongst other things, and he told me that he knew of both the Sayers and the Grass's family, and also their respective criminal backgrounds. He compared the two families to football teams, Newcastle United being the Sayers, and the Bedlington Terriers being the other family. He also said, just bear this in mind, when the managers of Newcastle United and the manager of Bedlington Terriers have their team talk, both will sound very convincing and both will sound very similar. But when two teams go out to play the quality of football played by Newcastle as opposed to Bedlington is so superior, it's leagues apart. I found this wise old man very interesting and accurate. He also went on to tell me that history has a tendency to forget the quiet ones. I asked him to explain himself in more detail, and he told me that people like myself, my brothers and our associates, are a dying breed due to advances in technology. He said that there were no records of us trying to defend or clear our name against the slander and outrageous accusations that this man has used to deflect attention away from himself. So in years to come, our name would be blackened with no way of clearing it and the only records of us that would be out there would be extremely inaccurate. In telling the truth within this book, I can at least start to address some of that. The Jealous Grass is, without doubt, a police informer, and a coward who is driven by jealousy and hurt through failure, and he uses the Sayer's name to portray himself on a par with us. There's been a lot of blood spilt, and a lot of prison sentences served, and a lot of tears shed for us to bow to him or anybody. This fool has got us so wrong. It was 1995. After the failed attempt on my father John Bryan Sayer's life, the hitman Robert Stoko panicked and drove himself directly to Gateshead Police Station and made a full confession and made a statement saying that he'd just tried and failed to kill my father and that he feared for his life. He handed a 22 handgun in. Stoko was charged and was remanded immediately. He was so scared that he only felt he'd be safe behind bars. 
Stoko arrived in HMP Durham Prison fully aware of the situation he'd willingly or unwillingly placed himself in. He didn't fancy his chances on the wing and he requested protection and put himself down the block in the segregation unit which was also used to hold Category A prisoners. He was put next door to the jealous grass who at that time had no bad feelings towards us apart from his jealousy of our success. While Stoko was being moved into the cell, his new neighbour was taken on a visit. This was when he came across Stoko and they made their introductions as they passed each other. The Grass's brother made it very clear that his family were indebted to the Sayers family for a major favour we'd done for them, which them and their associates were incapable of doing themselves. It was a bit of work out of their league, but it was sorted by a member of my family. This was not a financial debt in any way, it was a debt of honour. And the older brother specifically told his younger brother that he must attack Stoko on sight for their family's respect. But the grass had never been a violent man. He would always hand-pick his victims and he never fancied his chances with violent men. The older brother left the prison and drove immediately to my home in Grange Road, Fenham, with a big smile on his face and I invited him in for a cup of tea. He asked to talk with me outside so we went into the garden where he told me that the man that shot my dad had arrived in Durham prison and that they placed him next door to his younger brother. He assured me that his brother was going to beat Stoko up and leave him in a really bad condition. He always had a high opinion of his brother, but my opinion was totally different. I knew he was just an aggressive schoolyard bully with no brain and a child's temper. The older brother left and told me he'd give me a phone call later when the job was done. His final words were, This is the least we can do for you. We're indebted to you and more than grateful for what you've done for us, and we're only too happy to help. I believed those words that he spoke to me. It's just a shame his brother didn't share the same morals. He was clearing something in his family's name, and it meant fuck all to him. Time passed. A week went by and still no call. Instead of giving him a hiding, the jealous grass had befriended Stoko. He was supposed to fuck him up, not fuck him up the arse. In fairness, Stoko was a convincing liar and he had a way of getting people to like him. He was a half-educated man and the subjects he talked about he seemed knowledgeable in. A man of low intelligence like the grass was very easy prey for Stoko, who wrapped him around his little finger and he hatched a plan that only the jealous grass could fall for. He told him that he had discs containing records of all paid informers and that on that disc were records of transactions involving our family. He said he was willing to hand those over to him in exchange for 10k. He had his victim eating out of his hand. In the meantime, the jealous grass had been told he was facing a sentence between 20 and 22 years for the charges he faced. He was involved in an alleged torture and subsequent armed escape from the prison van he was being transported in. You have to wonder what deal he made with Northumbria police to get his sentence reduced to less than half. Bearing in mind that we got 10-year sentences on guilty pleas for charges that have guidelines of 3-4 to four years. About two weeks went by and the news we were getting from our friends on the wing was that the jealous grass had been shouting that he had discs on the entire Sayers family and every one of their associates claiming that we were all grasses. 
He also sent letters to people in jails up and down the country saying that people were getting arrested everywhere in the UK because of the Sayers family and he had discs to prove it. The fact is that not a sinner had been arrested. Talk about counting your chickens before they hatch. This was the fool trying to deflect the attention of shame away from himself for failing to carry out the job he should have done for his family. As the months went by, nobody could get to him or Storko, because they were separated from all the other inmates, and the jealous grass was still ranting and raving, saying that he had proof that my dad had positively identified Storko on an identity parade and made a 20-page statement about Storko, but this could not have been any further from the truth. The problem the jealous grass has always had is that he's always judged others on his own low-life morals and degenerate standards. This was his weakness, yet the fool couldn't see it. A very good friend of mine arrived in Durham from Winston Green, Tony Armstrong, Big Bud to you. He'd been placed on the same landing in the unit of HMP Durham Prison as the Jealous Grass. How convenient. He immediately went to the Jealous Grass's cell door and put it directly on him, demanding to know where the evidence was about the Sayers being grasses. The Jealous Grass told him that he was getting the evidence in the next couple of days and he was going to show the world and its dog and it was going to go national. Bud had little option but to walk away as the cell door was locked and there was no way the jealous grass was going to ask for it to be opened. Two days passed and Bud was lying in his cell. He heard the jealous grass's big mouth on the phone talking. Soon after, he heard something get pushed under the threshold of the door. It was a lump of dope. It was the jealous grass saying that he had the discs and that he wanted no hard feelings, so here was a smoke on him. By that time, the grass had arranged for a meeting to take place between his older brother and Stoko's wife to exchange the cash for the half dozen discs. The meet was made for a Wednesday. Once they had the discs, the plan was to sell them back to the government to make a deal for the jealous grass to be released. I think he'd watched a few too many films, or had smoked a bit too much gear. The older brother made arrangements and turned up with his brother-in-law, who was also a friend of mine. There were also three legal representatives and half a dozen top-ranking civil servants from the Home Office in London. The meet was made for 6pm in Newcastle and it was to be a straight handover, or so they believed. The two parties turned up and the woman had her hand in the bag as though she was about to take the discs out and the older brother passed her the cash payment of £10,000. She pulled her hand out of her bag and she was holding a key. The older brother asked what was going on and where the discs were. She told them that for security reasons, she placed them in a locker at Central Station and that was the key to open the locker. Sneaky fucker, eh? There was a key ring attached to the key with a number engraved into the metal. The older brother took the key and let the woman leave instead of getting her to take him to the locker and open it together. He took the key and along with the people from the Home Office and the Jealous Grass's legal team, straight to the central station to open the locker and collect the discs. The key fitted one lock and one lock only. After months and months of calling the Sayers family and our associates Grasses and swearing he had the evidence to back it up, it all hung on the turn of this key. He must have felt like a low-rent Noel Edmonds. All eyes were on him as he put the key in the lock and turned it and opened the door to find absolutely nothing. Fuck all, in fact. 
just empty space, which ironically is what you'd find in his younger brother's head if you opened it up with a baseball bat-shaped key. There were no discs, no evidence. For safe measure, he tried the key in every single locker that was there, but the key only fitted one locker. To say the people from the home office were a little upset would be an understatement. They shouted at the Grasses legal team for being amateurs and time wasters, saying that they were victims of a confidence trick, where the Grasses family had been swindled out of £10,000. I spoke to Bud and he told me it was absolutely hilarious, as there were only four people in the unit and the Grass had not shut up about these discs and how he was going to be released in the morning. He was so certain of his imminent release that he'd given all his belongings away, including his radio and tobacco all of which now resided with Bud. The jealous grass was like a cat on a hot tin roof. He got the screw to allow him out of his cell to make an emergency call to find out how things had progressed, while Bud nodded off listening to his newly acquired radio. He was suddenly woken up by an almighty screaming from next door, as though a man was being tortured. Bud heard hysterical screams of, Where the fuck are the fucking discs? I'm supposed to be getting released today. I just want to go home. Bud doubled up with laughter. The jealous grass was screaming so loudly that the screw terminated his phone call, which took his childish temper to the next level. This was a stamp-your-feet type tantrum. He screamed, I should be going on today. I want my fucking discs at the screw. The screws had no choice but to restrain him and force him back into his cell. Bud had never seen or heard anything so ridiculous coming from a grown man in his life. This was a man who claimed he was running Newcastle. Then it suddenly dawned on him that Stoker was in the cell next door to him, so he screamed, Stoker, where are my fucking discs? I want my fucking money back. Stoker, always thinking on his feet, pacified the clown, probably gave him a toffee, and somehow convinced him that all would be put right the following day. When Stoker was up for sentencing at Crown Court, all the Jealous Grass's family and friends attended. My dad attended with his solicitor to try to assist Robert Stoko as he'd not made a statement. All he'd said was that he didn't see who'd shot him. Even though my dad was a victim of the crime, he said no reply all the way through. The prosecution stood up and told the judge that Robert Stoko was pleading guilty to GBH with intent for shooting my dad in the face. It was also stated that he'd been a police informant for over 15 years and that he'd been helpful to Northumbria police. Gasps of disbelief came from the Grasses family as reality sank in. Their brother had been conned and had lost 10k through his own stupidity. The older brother, being old-fashioned and respectful in his ways, approached my dad and shook his hand and apologised. He explained that his brother's head was gone and he kept apologising. Reporters from newspaper, TV and radio were there and they all repeated that Robert Stoker was a police informer and told of his massive assistance to Northumbria police. Bud and everybody on the wing were tuned into their radios for the 2pm news. Well, everybody except the grass who'd gave his away. Bud turned it up for his benefit though. It was the top story and explained why they were only giving Stoker a four-year sentence for shooting my dad in the face. The grass shouted and screamed at the top of his voice, saying, They're all grasses and they work with the sayers. Bud laughed at him. Who are the grasses? Who's working for the sayers? 
The jealous grass shouted back really aggravated. All them mugs in court, the, the judge, the defence team and the CPS, they're all grasses. Bud couldn't believe his ears. It seemed that the man's mind was shot. I guess he'd taken his obsession with grass a bit too far these days. After my dad's court case, the cat was out of the bag as far as Stoker was concerned. Everybody was 100% certain that he was the grass and they were correct in believing so because it was proven to be the truth. A week or so after, the jealous grass got moved from HMP Durham to HMP Full Sutton. In the meantime, our good friend Bud Armstrong saw an opportunity and seized it with both hands. They would never put Stoko on association with him, but because Stoko would always ask to be with a jealous grass and vice versa, they would end up together all the time. One day on association, Bud was watching a bit of boxing on the TV when Stoko just appeared and started talking away to him like he was his long-lost friend. Stoko asked what he was watching as there was a wildlife programme about to start that he wanted to watch. Watch what you want, mate. I'm going to take a shower, he told him. Bud made his way to his cell and improvised by melting razor blades into his toothbrush handle. Then he came straight back for the unsuspecting Stoko. Bud grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, The Sayers brothers say hello, and carved him up like a Sunday roast. Stoko screamed for the screws. Armstrong has a knife! He has a knife! He's cut my face! He slashed me! He screamed. The big woofter. The screws took Bud back to his cell and took Stoko to the hospital. He required 58 stitches and Bud was later arrested and charged and eventually ended up with another four years on top of his 14 that he was already doing for violent robberies. During the time the jealous grass was in Durham unit, he remained in contact with Stoko and he'd not have a bad word said about him. This annoyed a lot of people, including his family who found it shameful. Bud eventually ended up in HMP Full Sutton and got put in the same wing as the jealous grass, and it seemed like he was fast becoming the angel of karma. Keen to shut the grass up once and for all, but not keen on adding any more bird onto his sentence, he bided his time. One day, the screws shouted Bud up for a visit when he necked a nice little parcel. To cut a long story short, he ended up needing laxatives for a week-long bout of constipation, and when his seven days of prison food finally arrived, he stored it up in a newspaper, walked straight over to the grass and from behind forcefully rammed the newspaper into his face and scrubbed him with the putrid human shite. After crying and vomiting, he ran back to his cell, screaming, and didn't venture out again that night. Instead, early morning before the cells got opened up, he put himself down the block on protection, which he was known to do in most places he served his time. It's not difficult to work out that I've been a criminal all my life, as of the majority of my associates. It stands to reason that, as criminals, we associate with other criminals. Every profession works the same way. Myself and every other criminal in Newcastle upon time are amazed and flabbergasted why this man could contemplate even passing any sort of opinion on crime as he's never committed any or experienced any at major level. The biggest job he's ever done is probably shoplifted from his local farm foods. If he went on match of the day and commentated on football, people would ask what he was doing there and why he had the right to talk about a subject he has no knowledge of. The same goes for crime. 
People have asked me what crimes he's ever committed, and the honest reply is, nothing. Absolutely nothing. He's never worked on the pavement, blagging, nor fought on the cobbles, straighteners, but in his mind, there is nobody quite like him, and he has become a legend in his own kitchen. The jealous grass has always been obsessed with men that have reputations for violence, and Jimmy Somerville, aka Psycho, who I gave that terrible beating to in Raffles Pub, was his hero. I bumped into the jealous grass about two weeks after I'd beaten up Psycho at the Citroen garage on Elswick Road. As I was driving along, I caught a glimpse of him. I immediately stopped my car and made a beeline for him and put it straight on him. Do you have a fucking problem with the fact that I did your hero, Psycho? Because if you do, I'll do you now. Get down the back lane. Being his usual cowardly self, he bad-mouthed Somerville to try and get on side with me. Fuck off, you fucking coward. He was your friend, man. Get down this back lane with me now. He knew better. He's only ever liked violence with people who are not violent. The jealous grass immediately jumped in his car and wheels spun away, only daring to shout idle threats from his car window when he was a safe distance away. He can talk a good fight, but not a person alive has ever witnessed him stand up to any man that was not weaker than him. As I say, he's always been impressed by violent men, because he's always been really impressed by criminals. He has an unhealthy obsession with the sayer's name and reputation. At any and every given opportunity, whether it be on TV, in books, on the internet or in newspapers, and even in general conversation with any fucker or listen, he thrives and jumps at the opportunity to mention us. This impressionable fool has now become our biggest fan and tries to link himself to major crimes and robberies that were not only completely out of his league, but that he has nothing to do with whatsoever. He has even invented a mass gangland feud between the Sayers and his family in Newcastle, but it couldn't be further from the truth. The fact of the matter is, this is a complete one-sided affair. The feud has only ever existed in his own big empty head. It's quite sad and pathetic, really. During the Freddy Knight's trial, I had a lot of support from friends and family. My friend Mark Rowe, my travelling cousins Frankie and Philip Riley, Jason Heels from Bishop Auckland, and my good pal Boss Cal, Javid and Mumtaz and many more, they all made their way to Leeds to show their moral support for the family. We decided to go for fish and chips during a break, so about 25 of us made our way to the chippy. We were all enjoying our food and sitting in the sun when we received a call to say that the jealous grass had gone and sat in the courtroom to point and laugh at the lads who were stood in the dock. He was holding his stomach and mocking them with exaggerated signs of false laughter. He stayed for no more than five minutes before leaving, knowing full well that we were on our way back for him and he got out before we arrived. I think what he did that day was an act of a man with no morals gloating at the possibility of another man facing the rest of his life in jail. A man of such low morals, who can find amusement and pleasure in another man spending the rest of his life in jail, would surely have no problem in putting him there. The jealous grass had already decided in his polluted, warped mind of bitterness that our John was going to receive a life sentence and the jury's decision was just going to be a mere formality. Little did he realise, we're from good stock, and we don't give in or crumble under the first bit of opposition we come across, unlike him. The end of the trial came, and our John was acquitted on the charge of murder, but was waiting on charges of manslaughter and GBH with intent. 
Either one of these charges was enough to give him a life sentence, and the jealous Grass was fully aware of this. He'd arranged for about 30 of his family and friends to have a barbecue in his back garden to celebrate the outcome, and apparently spent over a thousand pounds on champagne and fireworks for the party to celebrate the news that he'd been craving. The phone call came through that John was found not guilty, and my friend's sister, who attended the family get-together, told us how this happy mood descended like a lead balloon, or even like an overgrown child who'd just been told his party was cancelled. He smashed the phone off the floor and he ran over to his fireworks, that had taken him over an hour to assemble, and kicked into him, screaming and shouting at the top of his voice. Needless to say, he called off the barbecue, but still there were fireworks. During his mission of discrediting us, to draw attention away from himself, me and John were approached by David Glover Sr., who told us that the sad excuse for a man had pressured his son to turn police informer and make a statement to Northumbria Police stating, in the idiot's words, but through Glover's mouth, that me and my brother Michael had been responsible for the murder of our friend, Viv Graham. It turned out that Davy Glover Jr., made a deal with Northumbria Police to be the main prosecution witness in the case, giving evidence against me and Michael. Unfortunately for the jealous grass, this did not happen as he had planned. Old Glover also told us that if any harm was to happen to the jealous grass, that me and my brothers were to be immediately arrested because the jealous grass had sent a letter to the CPS, the Home Secretary, Northumbria Police Chief Constable and the Lord Chief Justice and any other person in a position of legal power and probably the Prime fucking Minister. No doubt his handlers got a copy of the letter too. Each letter stated that if any severe harm came to him or if he was killed, the people responsible would be the Sayers brothers and their associates. I have to admit, this did amuse both me and John. I asked Glover Jr. if the jealous grass would fight me to put an end to this farce, and his reply was, Stephen, this coward will do nothing but mouth off from a distance. So basically, if any harm comes to him, we'll get arrested and remanded off the back of a statement that he cobbled together. There's not a chance in the world that this coward will turn up to a fight with anyone that will hit him back, so my options are very limited. I was brought up with old-fashioned morals, and before I retired, I was an old-fashioned villain. I'm not an attention seeker. As a villain, it's not a good asset. You may ask me why I'm on social media websites and publicising a book you're now reading when it's out of character for me to draw attention to myself. It's very simple. It's to set the record straight. In 2005, I was drinking in Newcastle with a load of my friends who I'd grown up with in a pub called The Mill, a very busy bar that I was involved with. There were a lot of characters, good and bad, that used to frequent the place, including my dad and a lot of my family. Our Michael's kids, Michael, Anthony and Camille, would always pop in to see their granddad. Good mates like Tom Brayson and his twin's son, Thomas, my young namesake, Stephen Morris, Hezzy, Rig, Young Riggers, Tommy Dillon, Billy Dixon and John Mario Cunningham, to name a few. There were a lot of good nights in that bar, but unfortunately it was all going to come to an end as one quiet afternoon, about 20 drug squad officers burst in and ripped a certain area of the bar to pieces. Everybody found this strange, as it was not a bar that sold drugs. They found nothing and were very upset. The bar had to be repaired and was closed for a couple of weeks, 
but was eventually reopened. I called in with Michael to see my dad and have a couple of drinks when we were approached by this man whose face was black and blue. He told us that he was one of the reasons why the bar was raided. We took this man to a quiet table and told him to explain himself. He said that the jealous grass had given him a bag containing smack, crack and coke and told him to hide it in the mill bar at a certain place and if he did not do it, he was in for a good hiding. Credit where credit is due, this lad did not do what the jealous grass wanted. Instead, he consumed the contents of the bag. The next day, the lad walked out of his friend's house and bumped straight into the jealous grass who demanded to know why the drugs had not been planted in the bar. The lad made a good enough excuse and convinced the jealous grass that he still had the stuff and it would be done in half an hour. I later found out that the jealous grass had been nicked with two or three knives on him when he was still on licence and due up in court expecting jail. With the effort he had put in to get us nicked, all he got was a slap on the wrist for his crime. On his release, he continued to launch his tirades against me and my family, but his tall stories had worn thin. Shame he hadn't as well. People started to wise up to this fool, and his TV appearances and attacks in the local newspapers have all been for nothing. He was famous for four minutes, but ultimately he's mugged himself off. His family have disowned him, and the self-proclaimed King of Newcastle's Underworld lives in a caravan on his ex-wife's drive, smoking dope, ranting and raving about me and my brothers on Facebook. He even tried to grab some publicity in 2015 by wanting to go on the Jeremy Kyle show. There'd be a multitude of reasons, but my guess is that he wanted to confess his love for the three of us. His eagerly anticipated book <clears throat> ended up with someone else's name on it. I've heard he's planning another one now. I hope he's got plenty of photos to accompany the blank pages. Maybe a dot to dot or a colouring book would be easier for him to complete. He's tried his utmost to disrespect our family. A family that has been tried and tested at the highest level. And despite his humiliation, he still has his hidden agenda. And that is why I have to set the record straight. You see, I might be loyal as an old mongrel but I'll not be treated as such.